the desire to be righteous, that we, we, we hunger for it, we thirst for it. Um, you know, we use the word, I mean, Peter uses, talks about us uh, uh, tasting that the Lord is good. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a, uh, a desire to be connected at all levels. Then we talked about knowledge two weeks ago. We talked about the, the four different kinds of knowledge, the oida, the doxa, the episteme, and the gnosis, and, and each one a different level of knowledge uh, with which we come and we learn about who God is. Last week on Easter, we talked about uh, being self-controlled and steadfast, being unmoving, unwavering, uh, having control of, of ourselves and not the circumstances or the situations in which we are, but to determining uh, how we are going to navigate whatever it is that life throws at us and that we will seek to control self and remain steadfast being uncontrolled by the environment and the situations around us. We even talked about Jesus being self-controlled and steadfast as opposed to Pilate who allowed himself to be swayed by the crowd to do what he knew to be wrong. So we're going to go back to Second Peter chapter 1 and we're going to talk about the next one in the list. So, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, unlike a lot of sermons, this one kind of lays out the path. I mean, it's not real shocking that we're talking about godliness this morning. That's the next topic that follows uh, right after we talk about self-control and steadfastness, which is interesting because you would sit there and you would think, wait a minute, I'm being self-controlled to be righteous, right? I, I'm, I'm being steadfast in my, in my righteousness. So why are we now, after self-control, after steadfastness, talking about godliness? Well, the reason is, is because we do not really understand what godliness is. Most of the time, when pastors or preachers or others or teachers, they talk about godliness, uh, they'll use this phrase instead. They'll say, uh, godliness is God-likeness. Meaning, uh, in reference to the fact that we are supposed to um, look more like Christ in the way we act and in the way we behave. And, and there's some validity to that, that, that yes, we should look more and act more like God. But that is happening long before we start actually talking about the concept of righteousness. Right, or not righteousness, godliness. Godliness is best defined with these two words, and I want to put them in the proper context. Godliness is piety and devotion. Now, here are two words that we just don't really use in the church anymore because they sound so old, they sound so ancient, they sound like they don't have a place, but they absolutely, absolutely play into our relationship with God and the exercising of our faith. 
piety, and devotion. So instead of God-likeness, really what it is, it is God-lifeness. And as weird as that sounds, there is a distinction. Anybody can look like God. Anyone can try. I mean, uh, James even tells us that we have to beware of those uh, who, who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Where is its power? The power is in the life of God that exists within us. Godliness is not teaching ourselves to imitate God, to pretend to be God. It is to allow ourselves to become consumed by God. To have his life fill us from the bottom to the top. That every aspect of who we are becomes consumed in who he is. That's godliness. And that's why it comes after self-control. And it comes after steadfastness. Being pious and devoted means being surrendered to and given over to. To allow something else to demand your time, your energy, your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your actions. If you're married, I hope that you are devoted to your wife or to your husband. I hope that you are devoted to him. And what does that mean? It means to have been surrendered and given over to them. To have them literally possess your life and fundamentally alter it. One of the reasons why we're told that we should marry a believer, that's in there, right? I mean, he says that. He says, don't be unequally yoked. I mean, the reason is, is because whoever you are devoted to consumes you, changes you. So when we are talking about godliness, that's what we are talking about, a relationship with God that goes beyond mere thoughts, mere doctrines. It goes beyond mere actions, and it goes beyond attitudes to being the very life that we live, the actual sum of who we are. That's why John the Baptist could say, I must decrease, he must increase. Paul says, I don't want to know anything except Christ and the power of his suffering. I don't want to know anything. I, that's all I want. I want to be consumed. So I want to walk us through how godliness grows in us. And you can ask yourself, where, are, where am I on this path? Where am I on this journey in this, in this growing in godliness, God-lifeness? Well, Not surprising, godliness begins with another word, another idea that uh, we consider to be antiquated, which it isn't, and that is this, godliness begins with fear of the Lord. It's where it begins. It can have no other origin. And as we walk through this, you'll understand why. So in Proverbs 9, verse 10, there Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is 
insight. Now notice, knowledge follows the fear. Fear is the beginning. Now, for whatever reason, we have turned away from the concept of from this concept of fearing the Lord. It's not something I almost ever hear preached. It's definitely not something we talk about, and it's not something we want to embrace. The only message that we go out and tend to preach is the message of God's love and grace. And that is absolutely the truth. It is absolutely the gospel message. It is the good news. But it is the good news for a reason. Because it is what God has done to change the reality we're in. And so I cannot understand the good news. I cannot understand what Christianity is if I do not first understand the reality. I, I have a fear of the Lord, and I have a fear of bears. Some of you would consider the fear of bears irrational. When am I going to encounter bears? I don't care. I don't want to. I hate bears. I'm terrified of bears. I read stories of people who have died horrible, horrible deaths to bears. By the way, I would like to think, a couple of weeks ago, I came home, and on my porch was a bag filled with gummy bears and a stuffed bear that now sits on my bed. Thank you, whoever did that. You're a blessing. Why do I hate bears? I hate bears because of what they can do to me. Some people hate spiders, right? Hate spiders. Yeah, maybe a spider can kill you, but you know what? If I encounter a spider, I got a 99% chance of winning that battle. I'm going to come out of that one all right. Snakes? I probably got a 70-30. I'm not scared of snakes. I'm still pretty much bigger. I figure if I go into battle with a bear, I'm 100% dead. I'm not coming out of that one. I'm terrified of the things. I don't want to see them. I don't like it when we go to zoos and there's bears. Don't want to see. I'll see a tiger. I don't even know why tigers are fine. Bears are not. Don't want to see them. Now, what has the fear of bears taught me? I don't go where they are. That's wise. Jenny goes, let's go to, let's go to Yellowstone. <laughs> no, there are bears. I can't die in Yellowstone from a bear if I don't go. That's how that works. I stay away. It has taught me wisdom. She considers it foolishness, and that's an argument for a later time. I don't stick my hands into the cages at the zoos to pet the bears. The fear of bears has taught me wisdom. And I know it's wisdom. Do you know why? Because have you, you, we've all seen, you've all seen the videos that idiots, I'm sorry. <laughs> you have seen the videos that well-meaning people have taken of their friends climbing the cages and jumping in to pet the animals. They don't have a fear of bears. Well, they didn't, and they probably do now. See, the fear of something teaches us how to navigate when we live in a reality where that thing is. How do we 
come to know how to live in this world, in this reality, if we do not first understand the reality of who God is. And when you understand who God is, the very first thing you come to understand is this being created me out of nothing. He made dirt, and then he decided that dirt would make me. Somehow it works, it happens. I exist, I breathe, I continue to be because he decides that that is the way it is. And the reality is if there is a God that creates, then that God has the power to destroy. He has the power to remove. He's demonstrated it. This being is so beyond what we can even begin to comprehend that it should, it should bring fear to us. We as human beings, by nature, fear the things we do not understand. Folks, we do not understand God even as Christians. There are two kinds of fear. There is terror and there is awe. And normally when I hear the fear of the Lord being preached, it is uh, in reference to the awe. We should have reverence of God. We should, we should respect God. We, he is so big and he's amazing. And I, I get that, but the other side is just as true. In Acts chapter 5, verse 11, Ananias and Sapphira are Christians saved who go and sell their property, bring it to the disciples, and they only give them part of it. Hold the other part back. Peter says, is, is this all that you got for it? And they say, yes, they lie. That's all it is, is a lie. They just lie. And Peter says, how can you lie to the Holy Spirit? They're right there are the feet of the men who are going to carry you to your grave. Boom! Ananias goes down, dead. Sapphira comes in, same thing happens. Well, the feet of the men who carried your husband out, is not, they're right there, and they're going to carry you out. Boom, she's dead. Here's what it says, Acts 5, 11, and a great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. There is no real beginning with God that doesn't begin with the awareness of exactly who he is. He is life, he is death, he is the beginning, he is the end, he is the I am. He is what is, what will ever be, all that has ever been. All things begin in him, all things end in him. He raises some to be kings and some to be peasants. He raises some to be rich and some to be poor. The Bible specifically says that he appoints those who are born blind and deaf or lame. Everything that happens in this world happens by his power and authority. Why is that important? It is important. How, last week we, we celebrated Easter. How do you appreciate what was done for you if you do not 
first realize the reality you were in. See, when we realize how amazing he is, and we actually begin to realize what it is we deserve, because we don't deserve much. The fear of the Lord leads us to the second thing, which is humbleness. And that is, that, that is a word. That's a real word. I didn't make it up. Humbleness. I wanted to use that word instead of humility. Because in my mind, and maybe I'm wrong, but humility, humility is what someone else from the outside does to you. They humiliate you. They, they bring you low when you make yourself high. There's a place for that. I've been humiliated before. It's not fun, but I, the Lord has humiliated me. But humbleness comes from within. Humbleness comes from a reality of the situation. Humbleness is where I bring myself to my proper place. Humbleness is when I look and I realize who he is and exactly what it is that I deserve. So in 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Romans 6, 23. Let's go to that one. It says this. For the wages of sin is death. free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the most humbling, the most powerful verses that are in the scriptures because it hits the reality of the situation that we are in. Sin deserves death. There there is a God who will not tolerate sin. He hates sin. He will not put up with sin. He despises sin. James tells us, you you should be so afraid of being on sin's side that you shouldn't even want to touch clothing stained by sin. That is how much you should run from it and stay away from it. The Lord hates it that much. The Lord despises it. And anyone on the last day who stands with it will feel the wrath. God is going to punish and destroy sin. And anyone that stands with it meets the same fate. It isn't that he wants any of us to perish. No, in fact, we are told in the scriptures that his one desire is that all should be saved, but he will punish and destroy sin. That's the reality we're in. The wages of sin are death. The verse doesn't stop there, though, does it? How much does he hate sin? He hates it. He's going to destroy it. He's going to wipe it out. He's going to obliterate anything that stands with it, anything that takes sin upon itself. But you know what? That same God He loves 
much more than he hates. His love far exceeds his anger. His mercy exceeds his justice. And last week, what did we celebrate? That this God, though he despises sin so much, he loves us. That he sent his son to take upon his shoulders all of that sin and he dumped all of his wrath and his rage and the anger at sin. He crushed his own son for you. How, how does that not bring us to our knees? Where's the awe? Where's the awe in what Jesus did for us? Where, where is the amazement? Where is the incredible love that is demonstrated if we first do not embrace and understand and realize the fear of the Lord? The wrath is not pretend. It is real. But so is his love. And so we who deserve death We get life. Amazing, eternal life. We cannot appreciate what he has done. We can't without first understanding our situation. We cannot begin to accept the life of God if we do not realize that we were devoid of of that life. We did not have it. And that humbleness leads us to the next thing, which is another great word that's never used, contrition. We're getting some fun words here, contrition. Contrite. Contrite and contrary kind of kind of go together. Again, two words we don't really use. Contrary means in opposition to, in rebellion of. Contrition, contrite means surrender to and welcoming. In um, in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God. So what God is looking for from his people. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. And we come in that fear that leads us to the realization of what he's done for us. It brings us into that humility. And that humility brings us to surrender, to open up our life and to ask him, invite him, please come and consume me. Take it all. All of the sin, all of the mistake, all of the error, all of the greed, all of the lust, all of the everything that has been within me, I give it to you. Take it away. 
get to this place of just fully surrender. Contrition. We don't talk about it because it seems so daunting. Seems seems too big. Seems too big. Um, uh, boy, how 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 am I supposed to be contrite? How am I supposed to be? How am I supposed to be devoted? How am I supposed to be? How am I supposed to to be to be godly this way? I've got so. Look at my past. I've got so many mistakes. I've got so much that I'm facing right now. So many things going on in my mind and in my heart that are that are battling for what I'm thinking of and, and what I'm going to do. And I've got the entire future that I've got to think about and all of the things. And, oh, God, how in the world do I ever live in such a way that I am humbled to you, I'm, I'm contrite, that, that I'm actually surrendered to you. So let me say this. This contrition, being contrite, it has nothing to do with what you've done in the past. I don't, I, I, it doesn't matter what you did three minutes ago. It doesn't matter what you did outside, at home. It, none of that, it doesn't matter what you did last week. None of that matters. No, you know why? Because you can't change it. You can't fix it. There's, it. It's the past. But here's the reality. The future. What a waste of time trying to figure out and plan. I mean, the scriptures, the scriptures talk about that, right? Jesus tells the parable of the guy who, who kept, he was building these big barn houses to store all of his grain so he'd be wealthy for the rest of his life. And God looks and says, you fool, I'm, I'm coming and I'm taking your life tonight. Um, James tells us that, that we should not say uh, that, that this year, that year, today, tomorrow, we're going to go to this place, that place. We shouldn't do that because he goes, what is our life? It's a mist. We don't even know if we're going to have it. Instead, we ought to, do, we, we ought to just live in this moment. Right? Christ says that uh, 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 let tomorrow take care of tomorrow. It's got enough trouble for itself. Just focus on today. Focus on right now. Here's the thing with contrition. Here's the thing with obedience. Here's the thing with righteousness and godliness. It is a single choice. One choice. One. It's not a bunch of choices. It's one choice. It's not a bunch of moments. It's one moment. And that moment isn't in the past and it isn't in the future. It isn't tomorrow and it isn't yesterday. It is right now. I have this moment and this one choice. Am I surrendered to him? Don't worry about whether you're going to be surrendered to him tomorrow. It's irrelevant. Don't worry about whether you were yesterday. It's irrelevant. Godliness is right now. This moment, one choice. Am I surrendered? And I want to look, I want you to, When summer comes and they open up the pool in our neighborhood, not a big pool guy. Might be because I don't like not having a shirt on. We'll go to the pool, and we all know what is the absolute worst thing you can do when you go to the pool. Worst thing is to put your toe in and sit there because it's too cold. It's what we all do because we think that somehow that, that, you know, that, that makes sense. It's a bit, so then we put our foot in and it's worse. And, and, and we, inevitably, if you're like me, it's the belly button. That's, that's what I'm worried about. 
It's, it's here. Everything else, get it wet. But once I get there, I'm terrified. I just, okay, I'm almost there, almost in. And, and, and so the first part of my, my swimming experience is pretty miserable, trying to get to where I want to be. When really, what do you have to do when you go to the pool? You got to jump in. You got to jump in. You got to surrender to the pool. You got to let it cover you. Because if you just do it piece by piece, that is pretty miserable. Just it's, it's one of those get it over with. Listen, as dumb as it sounds, it really is that way with Christ. Listen, the blessings of Christ, the joy and the peace come through the surrender. The holiness comes through surrender. It's not even your holiness. It's his holiness. All of it. It comes in the surrender. And the miserable Christian is the one that's trying to do the foot by foot, piece by piece, little bit by little bit. I'll get a little bit of Jesus, but not enough of Jesus to actually hit the belly button. His, his blessings are amazing. Jump in. Give it up. And that leads us to the last thing. This is, this is where we hit God-lifeness. This is, where, this is where it all comes together, and that is in passion. Passion. So Romans 12, 11. I skipped the scripture again. I did it first service, but it was a different scripture. So Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. serve the Lord. Passion is the natural outcome. Now here's, this, is, this is how weird it is, and this is why it is important. You cannot get to passion if you do not start at fear. You cannot get to passion if you have not humbled yourself. You cannot get to passion unless you surrender yourself. Only when you have followed these steps down will you find yourself actually experiencing the passionate relationship that God wants. If you look around and you see Christians, we all do it. We all know what I'm talking about, and so I'm not going to pretend that it isn't reality. There are miserable Christians, and there are passionate, joyful Christians. I don't know which you are. You know which you are. But there are joyful, excited passionate Christians and those that are not. When you understand what you deserve and you realize what you've been given and you actually surrender yourself to this God who was willing to punish his own son to save you and me, that, that, that we, we can surrender to this son who, who does not hold it against us that he did that for us, but instead looks at us and says, I call you brothers. I call you friends. We surrender to him. We allow those blessings to come into our lives. What happens then? Passion grows.
first time you open up the Bible, the first time you don't read it, it speaks to you. It changes your relationship with that book. Because I spent a lot of time in my life reading the Bible. But it changed the moment that the book spoke to me. When I had that blessing of feeling the Spirit, when, when I opened up its words and it spoke directly to the situation I was facing for the first time, do you know what I wanted? I wanted every time I opened up that book to be that time. I wanted every time I opened up that book for the Lord to speak to me. I wanted that blessing in my life. I began to crave it like a kid who eats chocolate for the first time craves it once and that's all they can think about it's the same thing that first time you spend your life praying mom and dad they teach you pray to God pray to God but that first time he speaks back that first time you feel the spirit move inside of you the first time you touch the divine all you want to do is pray again all you want to do is touch that again all you want to do is be that close you grow up singing songs in the church I can still remember the first time I sang How Great Thou Art, and I got it. I broke. When I understand, when I understood what those words meant, what I was saying, I wanted to sing that song every Sunday. Funny thing is, we all have favorite hymns or favorite songs, whatever it is that we, that we like to sing. The funny thing is, the ones that we like the most aren't the ones that sound the best necessarily. They touched us. We had an encounter. We want that encounter. We want to recreate that encounter. We want to have it again. The problem is we cannot mistake the experience for the encounter. Recreating the experience does not recreate the encounter. A contrite heart recreates the encounter. A heart that comes into any circumstance, into any situation and says, come, consume me, take me, Lord. That's when he touches us. Once he does, we just want more. I want more. I've been doing this 20 years. I'm not done. I'm not done. I've heard him speak. I, I, I've seen him do crazy things. And I don't have crazy things happen all the time. But do you know what I want? I want more crazy things. They're awesome. There is nothing better than that moment when you see God move and you know it was him. There was no one else. I didn't plan it. I, I, I was actually in the middle of trying to stop it. And God just said, shut up, Nathan, and did it anyway. Dad, I love it. I love seeing his move. And I want it. I want it here. I want it in my family. I want it in my life. I want it in your life. I want it in your family's lives. I want it in this church. I want it in this community. That's what I want to see. See, when you touch him, you touch him, all you want is him. He's all you want. He's all you crave. That's godliness. The life of God consumed in us. That's why it comes.
comes after steadfastness and self-control. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10.31, last scripture, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And for those of you that were here two weeks ago, that's doxa, proclaiming his knowledge. The end result of God's consummation of our life is that our very existence comes to proclaim who he is. It sounds weird when, sometimes we read the scripture and we just, we just take it for granted. Think about what he's saying. Paul is saying, whatever you do, even if it is putting food in your mouth, do it to his glory. Even if it is chewing food between your mandibles, do it to his glory. Even if you are swallowing the food into your gullet, do it to his glory. This is going to sound really weird. I want to know how to glorify God in the shower. I want to figure that out. Can we get there? How can I glorify God in the shower? How can I glorify God driving to work? How do I do that? I don't know. Let's find out. How do I do that? That's what I want. That's godliness. Every moment, God is with you. Every moment, he is communicating to you. Every moment, he is communing with you. It's just whether or not we are receiving it. And once you do, there's no going back. Christ is looking for people to be consumed with him. Be filled with his life. Tell you what, and if you understand the fear, if you understand what we deserve, and you understand what he's given you, what he's handed out to you, man, there is nothing that should stop us from running to him right now, falling on our knees and giving him thanks. Or if you haven't ever accepted him, hearing that voice, hearing that call, having that encounter, this moment where the Holy Spirit says, I'm talking to you, this is about you. Do you hear what he's saying? God is saying, I'm worthy of fear. I love you. Last thing, my favorite passage, and I've used it before. You read the Chronicles of Narnia, and one of the girls, I can't remember if it's Wendy, no, no, that's Peter Pan, who knows. Um, Peter Pan doesn't apply in this lesson. Lucy, the oldest one. All right, Susan. So glad this is taped and goes up for everyone to hear. Oh, it's his favorite passage. He doesn't know who the characters are. 
but there's this, there's this part where C.S. Lewis writes, and, and it's, it, it's, it's so poignant. The, the lion in there is the, is the, is the, the king, and the king, um, the, the, actually, the, the lion is the son of the king beyond the, beyond the horizon. She's talking with one of the talking animals, and the animal says, we need to go, and we need to talk to Aslan. That's the lion. And she goes, a lion? Might as well said a bear, right? Um, a lion, she goes, is, is he safe? And the animal goes, oh, my goodness, no. He's a lion. Didn't you hear me? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. And that gets me every time. Because that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. There's a reason when he comes back, it is called, it, there's two phrases. When he comes back, it is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It is great because he is going to fully and completely pour out his love. And it is terrible because he is going to fully and completely, once and for all, remove all sin and those that stand with it from existence. For some, it will be terrible. And for some, it will be great. Let's stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation.